morning. Welcome to Door Creek Church and uh, to Madison for our fall district conference. Um, we're going to have a great time today. Just really appreciate you all uh, coming early for this pre-conference. Um, I don't know. I'm, I guess I didn't say it. I'm Scott Sterner, the director of church multiplication, in case you didn't know that, for the Forest Lakes District. And I came to Madison about, a little, about nine and a half years ago to help plant a church, and, and I'm now working full-time with the district. Um, I had the opportunity to meet Pastor Mike Bulmore, our speaker today, a couple years ago, just as I was meeting with Josh Matthews, one of his pastors, to discuss church multiplication systems and networking, and, and just had a wonderful time. Um, one of the things that you learn as you are in ministry for some time is, is even if you don't know the person, if you know the pers- the, some of the people that they've led, you know a lot about them. And I've had the opportunity over the years to pastor several former members of uh, Crossway and Kenosha, and also to work alongside several of the young men who came up through their internship program. And what I can say across the board for those folks is that they have a, a, a grasp, a deep love for, passion for, understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only in the power to save, but also in the power to transform the believer's life. And so... Uh, For that reason, I was just so excited that we were able to get him to come and spend time with us. And so today we'll be in this session focusing on the functional centrality of the gospel. And so please join me in welcoming Pastor Mike. Well, good morning, uh, everybody. Thanks for coming out. You know, when they invite you to do a pre-conference, you just never know uh, if there's going to be like four people or 40, and so thank you so much for making it a point to um, be at this first uh, session that's, not, I guess, uh, not formally part of the, the uh, designated day, but um, I have made a decision to um, present something in this session that uh, is going to be foundational for the rest of the day. I recognize not everybody's here, um, but what we're going to talk about this morning is absolutely foundational to everything that we're going to be talking about the rest of the day. Um, I've been asked to talk today. They're putting me to work, by the way. Uh, Four sessions. I told my wife, you know, I'm going to have to talk to you all the way home just to stay awake on the way home. Um, But uh, four sessions on um, gospel-centered discipleship. And what we want to talk about in this pre-conference session is, in fact, that foundational piece of the gospel itself. In fact, as you can see from the title, not just an abstraction, not just an idea, but a functioning gospel. Um, I am particularly excited to be able to bring this to this conference. Um, I'm a pastor. That's how I see myself. Um, And so I feel keenly the pressures and the opportunities of local church ministry, like you do. Um, I'm assuming every one of you has your hands in some form of ministry of the word, some administration of the word in the local church. And so I'm with you. I'm not coming in as some kind of um, scholar or I'm coming in as a pastor. And I have looked forward to being with you Um, Something special happens when you get a group of people together in a room that all love the same things and are all trying to move in the same direction. 
I think God uses those times. Um, so there is this expectation I've had as I've anticipated being with you, um, as I've prayed about being with you, that God would use this not just for you, but I think about the effect of your ministry now in churches where, Lord willing, hundreds of people will be um, influenced by the kinds of things that we want to talk about today. Gospel-centered discipleship, which I think captures exactly what we're supposed to be doing in local church ministry. So um, I'm a firm believer that nothing gets wasted in God's economy. Nothing. And so here we are this morning. Uh, we're going to do our best to um, make use of the time that God has given us. And so let me pray, and then we're going to jump into um, today's or this morning's session. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that um, you would take our simple little offering here, our little loaves and fish, and multiply it. Um, make something of this that goes on. Um, we pray that you would cause fruit to be born that will last, not just in our own lives, but God, we would pray that you would take the things that we learned today, take the things that you want to put into our hearts and our minds today, and bring them back to homes and to churches and to ministries. Um, Lord, we recognize that um, little is much when you are in it. And so, God, we pray. We're only going to be together for eight hours here. Um, doesn't seem like much. But we recognize that you are able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or even imagine. And so we can imagine a lot. Um, so, God, we pray. Take this. Help me just to be clear. I pray that each one of us would be given strength for today, emotional, mental, physical strength that we need. Um, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned a moment ago that I am particularly excited to bring this teaching um, to this conference, this idea. By the way, do you all have an outline? Um, there should be one in your, in your pack, just like a four-page outline with the title, The Functional Centrality of the Gospel. Do you all have that? Is it in your packs? Okay. You'll want to have that out. I trust that serves you. But I believe this idea... Uh, of the functional centrality of the gospel um, has profound potential for your life and ministry. This is something that's occupied my thinking for several, many years now. I don't want to pretend this morning that this is something hugely kind of revolutionary. Um, in one sense, I'm not going to say anything new or groundbreaking this morning, but I can say that this, this idea of a functioning gospel, has been remarkably clarifying for me as a pastor. It has been remarkably fruitful in my own life as a follower of Christ and in my ministry in the local church. So I believe it can be revolutionary for our lives and our ministries, for the spiritual well-being of our churches, when this... The functional centrality of the gospel is intentionally pursued and intentionally applied. So I'm very eager to share this with you this morning, and I think the place to start 
is just by telling you about a time a couple years ago, several years ago now, when I received an invitation to participate in what was being described as a pastor's colloquium. Um, it was convened by two guys named Don Carson and Tim Keller, and they invited about 40 different pastors from around the country to come together for what was then just described as a colloquium. And we talked about, during that gathering, what it looked like to be gospel-centered in our pastoring, gospel-centered in our churches. That has since become what is known as the Gospel Coalition. Um, but at that very first meeting, every one of us who was invited was asked to present, along with our resumes, an answer to this question. What is the greatest need in the church today? Well, here's what I wrote. What is the greatest and most crying need in the church today? Not just a biblical theological literacy, but a functioning biblical theological literacy, especially a functioning gospel. I believe a local church is healthy to the degree that, number one, it's pastor teachers. By the way, I recognize that not everybody in this room is in that office of pastor teacher, but I think all of us uh, are in some role of ministry in the church, and certainly we care about the effective ministry of the word in the local church. And so you might have to do a little translating today uh, in terms of your own responsibility, your own ministry, but I believe a local church is healthy to the degree that, number one, its pastor teachers are able accurately, effectively, and broadly to bring the gospel to bear, specifically in the real lives of the people, and two, that its people have a deep personal understanding of and a deep personal appreciation for the gospel so as to be able to live in the good of the gospel daily. One of the greatest challenges, yet one of the most important tasks of pastoral ministry is to help people actually see the connections between the gospel and the thinking and the behavior that make up their everyday lives. We know well the centrality of the gospel message, but in order for it to have a functioning centrality, it must be clearly, and I say clearly because there is just so much possibility of fuzziness, carefully, and I say carefully because there are dangers all around, and consistently, and I say consistently because there's a tendency to drift. And biblically speaking, you know this, biblically speaking, drift is always away, never toward. Uh, it's, it's like only in Disney movies that you drift towards something good. Um, biblically speaking, drift is always a way, and there is always a tendency, given the dynamics of human being, given the dynamics of people getting together in a, in, in a, in a context, there's, there's always a danger of drifting, so consistently as well. Clearly, carefully, consistently, we need to connect the gospel to the real issues, issues of thought and of conduct, in people's lives. This kind of ministry is most greatly needed. So that was my response to the question. Let me just be completely straightforward. I don't know what the greatest need in the church is. I'll leave that to, actually I do know. It's Jesus. Um, he is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the head of the church. And the gospel, I want to make sure we don't make this mistake right off the bat here, the gospel is the Bible's way of speaking about Jesus. 
So don't trip over this word gospel. Sometimes people say, you know, you, we, we stress the gospel so much. Isn't it Jesus? Yeah, it's Jesus. The, the, Bible, the, the gospel is the Bible's way of speaking about the person and the work of Jesus, and we need that. We need the word of the gospel. We need the truth of the gospel. We need the, the complete gospel. I know there's a very great need for that in the local church. I know that's true in my local church. I'm pretty sure it's true in your local church. And I know that not as the result of some kind of exercise in abstraction. I know that as a personally and a regularly observed need in my own life in the lives of people I interact with. There really is a great need for this in people's lives, for the gospel to function for them, for it to do work for them. And the gospel is capable of doing that work. It's not as if we're asking the gospel to do something that it's not capable of doing. I think about Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Greek, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, delivered, brought. And not just in that initial work, after it has done its work of regeneration, the gospel continues to be the instrument of all of our growth and all of our spiritual progress. Listen to how Paul says it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you. Now notice the time sequence here. Since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. Do you hear what Paul's saying? Not only did the gospel have its initial effect, the power of God for the salvation of all you who believed, but ever since the day that you heard it, it has been bearing fruit and growing. So it's this functioning, this working of the gospel in the life of the local church, in the life of believers, that I want to talk about this morning. I'm going to proceed in two very basic sections. First, I want to look at a biblical paradigm for the functioning of the gospel. It's the main thing that I kind of want to communicate. I want to Get this paradigm out before us. That's what's, that's what's in that first Roman number one. But then secondly, we're going to take some time at the end to offer a few practical suggestions as to what this might look like in local church ministry. So Roman numeral two will be implications and opportunities. Just a few suggestions that I want to make. I'm not going to try to be exhaustive or you know, cover everything. It's just meant to be suggestive. I'm going to paint with some broad strokes at that point. I'll try to give a few examples. I just want to be helpful. And so, secondly, implications and opportunities. But first, Roman numeral one, the functional centrality of the gospel, a biblical paradigm. One of the things you're going to hear me stress this morning is that I think this is a biblical paradigm. It's not just something that's kind of mind spun out of someone's brain. This is, I trust you find yourself convinced during the next half hour, a thoroughly biblical paradigm. Um, the connections that we're trying to make. Now, the way I've conceived this is with these three concentric circles that you see on your notes there. So um, we'll start right in the center, and you can write in that center circle just the words, the gospel. 
we can think of this for now, and I stress for now, as the essential centrality of the gospel or the theological centrality of the gospel. And we can see this in several explicit statements in Scripture, perhaps most notably in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Now, this, I'm sure, is a familiar passage to most of us, but I want to read it, and I want you to pick up a few kind of specifics where Paul gives in these verses, I think, a wonderfully succinct summary of the heart of the gospel. Listen to what he says. Now, I would remind you, brothers, he's writing to the Corinthians. He was there. He preached the gospel. He's now someplace else writing back to them. And he says, now, I would remind you, brothers, sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared, and he goes on to speak about several of those appearances. What I want to suggest to you is that this is a wonderful summary of the gospel, but especially in those five words, I think you have a great summary of the heart of the gospel. I know there's a lot of talk about, okay, what exactly is the gospel? The gospel is all that God is for us in Christ, all of it. But there is a great statement right here um, of the heart of the gospel in those five words, Christ died for our sins. When I was a little guy, um, maybe seven years old, um, Sunday school class was done, and you know what seven-year-old boys are like after Sunday school class, they just wanna, they wanna run, and so I'm heading out the door at a high rate of speed, and I hear my Sunday school teacher say, call my name, Mike, and I turn around, and I see her do one of these, and it's like, oh. So I went back, and she said, hold out your hand, and I held out my hand, and she did this. She said, I will never leave you. And then she folded up my hand and she said, that's a promise from God for you and you can take it with you wherever you go. And clearly I've never forgotten that some 55 years ago. Well, I wanna share that with you, but would you put that in your other hand for a moment and free this one up for this wonderfully succinct summary of the heart of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. That little statement contains all of the necessary elements of the gospel. It speaks of the reality of sin, the reality of our offense against God. It speaks of the necessity of divine punishment, justice being brought. Someone had to die for that sin. But it also speaks of the wonderful provision of salvation because Christ died for my sins. He died in my place. That is the gospel, but the point that I want you to pick up in 1 Corinthians 15 is how Paul talks about that as a matter of first importance. This is the main thing. There is this essential centrality, this essential theological centrality to the gospel. It's a priority that's given, and we know well the priority that is given to that message in Paul's preaching. And in his writing, he writes to the Corinthians, I resolved to know nothing among you except what? 
Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ died for our sins. He, he writes to the Galatians, I boast in nothing except what? The cross of Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins. You have these, these clear, explicit statements of the priority of the gospel. And then, on top of that, you have these statements, um, these other very explicit biblical statements that speak of the gospel in just unusual terms as the power of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Or the gospel as the blessing of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the gospel as the light of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I mean, really, the gospel is described in the most amazing terms. So there is this explicit giving of priority, theological priority to the gospel in these statements. So that's the first circle. The gospel itself, it's central. But now, in order for that gospel to have a functional centrality, a functioning centrality in our lives as believers, connections must be made. Connections between that gospel and the areas where people live their everyday daily lives. The gospel needs to be connected to areas of thought, patterns of thought, deep structures of thought. The gospel needs to be connected to Areas of conduct, patterns of conduct, deep structures of conduct. The gospel needs to be connected to, applied to, every area of our thinking, our feeling, our relating, our behaving, everything. And it's in those connections that the gospel begins to function. That's what makes the gospel functional. This is how the gospel wields its influence. This is where the gospel will bear its fruit. So this introduces the second and third of those circles in that diagram. Let's go first to the second circle, the closest, I would argue, the closest and most immediate connections with the gospel. This is what we might call the doctrinal implications of the gospel, what I like to call gospel truths. So in that second circle on that diagram, just write the words gospel truths, plural. Gospel in the middle, second circle, gospel truths. This is not the gospel itself. These are implications of the gospel, things that grow specifically out of the gospel. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul speaks, he recognizes this connection. He speaks about doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel. And so you've got the gospel itself, but you also have truth that flows out of it, gets its shape from the gospel itself. And so you have these doctrinal implications of the gospel. In other words, in that drawing, I hope this is kind of intuitive, that second thing is a circle because the first thing is a circle. In other words, those truths get their shape from the shape of the gospel. They are what they are because the gospel is what it is. Um, these are not just, okay, we believe in the gospel, and oh, by the way, here's some other truths that we believe. No, these things are true. They are what they are because the gospel is what it is. The content of these truths is what it is because of the content of the gospel. So, 
Now, here's the point. Those gospel truths, they bring the gospel to bear. They cause the gospel to function in areas of lived experience, particularly in the mind, in our thoughts. They are useful in the renewing of the mind so that our thinking, the content of our thinking, the patterns of our thinking, ultimately the structures of our thinking. I mean, stop and think about how much of your life you live right up here. It's amazing. All your hopes, all your fears, all your dreams, all your plans, all of that goes on right up here. And so you want that shaped by the gospel. As you bring these gospel truths to bear, your thinking is more and more going to be shaped by the truth of the gospel. I, I think this is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 15, when, when he says, may the God of hope, remember this verse, this is chapter 15, verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in what? In believing. In other words, believing certain things is going to produce in you the internal experience of joy and peace and hope so that you might have hope, Paul finishes that verse. The gospel will function to bear the fruit of joy and peace and hope when we bring these gospel truths to bear, when we, when we believe them. So let's look at some examples of gospel truths. I just want to kind of work this out. One of the things that I hope happens as a result of this is that you read your Bible with a whole new lens looking for these connections, seeing that your Bible is just replete with all of these connections that are there. We're not making anything up. We're just paying attention to how the gospel is kind of networked all through God's word. So as you might expect, the book of Romans is particularly rich in gospel truths. Let's consider Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It's familiar but I want you to pay particularly close attention to the logic which is indicative of the connections that we're trying to see. Therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, please notice the logic of the verse. In fact, Paul stresses the logic. Therefore, since we have been justified. In other words, something else is true because of the gospel. Something follows from the gospel. What is it? You are now at peace with God. Folks, don't let that just be some religious cliche. Don't let that just kind of hit your brain and sound like some nice churchy thing. Stop and think about what that means. You are now reconciled to the most important reality in the universe. You are at peace with God when that truth is grasped by someone. I mean really grasped by someone. That will go a long way in renewing their thinking and helping the gospel to function in how a person thinks about their fundamental status, their fundamental safety and security in a universe where you can feel shaken sometimes. You, you can feel existentially shaken at times. And this is saying that no matter what happens, no matter what happens, you are at peace with God. The Twin Towers can come down. Your spouse can be diagnosed with cancer. You can lose a child. 
And this fundamental reality is unchanged. Um, you are at peace with God. Or consider Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Again, please notice the logic. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, once again, Paul is standing in the gospel. He's got his feet firmly in that center circle, and he's now sharing a gospel truth, a doctrinal implication of the gospel, and the implication, quite frankly, is stunning. No condemnation for you. And when that truth is fully comprehended by a believer, it will revolutionize their mental world. And the gospel will function powerfully for them. I mean, stop and think about it. Without the gospel in the face of your ongoing sin, you got two options. Self-achievement or depression. But when the grace of God in the gospel is the functioning standard of our thinking with reference to how God deals with us with our ongoing sin, how he, how he now deals with those who are in him, how liberating this truth is. It's not that God won't deal with your sin. It's just that God no longer, no, no longer deals with your sin according to your sin. He now deals with your sin according to his love, which is very different. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 32. This is one of my favorites. He who did not spare his own son, what does that sound like? Christ died for our sins, right? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Here's Paul once again standing firmly inside the gospel and now about to share with us a gospel truth, a doctrinal implication of the gospel. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You see those words, also, and with him, they speak of something that comes along with, it grows out of the gospel. And so Romans 8.32 is really presenting one of these wonderful gospel truths. It's true because the gospel is true. And when you make that connection for people, this promise of God's gracious provision of everything they need for life and godliness, it grows right out of the gospel, I tell you, the gospel will be functioning for them by strengthening their daily trust in God for everything that they need. See, independent of the gospel, you as, I mean, stop thinking whatever role you have in the local church, you as a pastor, you as a, as a leader of some ministry, independent of the gospel, those promises which we know to go to and to say, but if they're not connected to the gospel, those promises are going to come out of your mouth and they're going to fall to the ground. They won't stick. But if you make the connection with the gospel, there is now something that gives great foundation and great power to these amazing statements. Let me just use an image here. Um, think of a, of a flywheel. Um, a great, heavy, ponderous, massive thing that takes a long time to get going. But once you get it going, and the whole point of a flywheel is it's got an axle on it and you can attach other things to it so that once you get the flywheel going, it now lends its power to whatever you, you attach to it. 
Well, that flywheel is the gospel. And sometimes in your church, it takes a little while to get it going. Um, but your job is to make sure that gospel is functioning or it's clearly presented such that it has momentum. And now as you attach things to it, and please notice, we're not making stuff up. These are connections that are biblical. As you attach things to it, as you make connections for people, now the gospel that you've gotten going in your ministry is able to lend its power, to give its power to whatever is appropriately attached to that. So if in your church, if in your local church or in your ministry, the gospel is central and it's clear, if it has momentum, by you seeing these connections, which are real, the gospel now gives its momentum to these truths, which are very close to where people live their real lives, in their minds, in their thinking, in their believing, in their hoping. And thus, the gospel will function for them. Well, there is beyond the shaping of our thinking by these doctrinal implications of the gospel. There's another level of connections that link the gospel to our behavior. This is the third circle. So go back to that opening diagram. These, we might call these behavioral implications of the gospel. I like to call it gospel conduct. So center circle, gospel, second circle, gospel truths. Now third circle, gospel conduct. Do you remember in Philippians, uh, Paul says to the Philippians, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, there is conduct that is worthy of the gospel. And then you have that very interesting episode that's recounted in Galatians chapter 2. Remember this? where Paul confronts Peter and his friends for, and I quote, conduct that was not in line with the gospel. And so you have this category presented right in Scripture, gospel conduct, gospel, or conduct that gets its definition, its content from the content of the gospel. So again, we have this idea of gospel-shaped conduct, conduct that grows out of the specific content of the gospel. It's a direct effect of the gospel. In fact, one of the things you might do in your diagram to help illustrate this is just draw little arrows out from the center of the gospel to the next levels to show that this gospel truths, these gospel truths and this gospel conduct is in fact flowering out of that gospel in the center. In other words, one of the ways the gospel functions and it's meant to function is by specifically informing behavior. I want to stress that word specifically. I believe as pastors, as ministers of the gospel, as Christians, we need to be reading our Bibles with a special eye to detecting the specific connections that it makes between the gospel and specific behavior. It's one of the things I hope happens out of this session is that you'll read your Bible with new eyes and you'll see the very specific lines that are drawn between the gospel and particular behavior. So let's look at a few examples just to prime the pump here. When in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul appeals to the Corinthians to, I quote, flee from sexual immorality. That's a behavior, right? 
Notice the very specific, very explicit connection that he makes. He wants the gospel to function as it should with reference to that behavior. So he doesn't, he doesn't just engage in morality. He doesn't just kind of do this, this moralism, you know, behave yourselves, stop it. No, he connects it to the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. You were bought with a price. He reminds them of the gospel. You belong to God. He uses redemption language. Now here's the connection. So glorify God in your body. In other words, he attaches this little behavioral exhortation to the already moving flywheel of the gospel, and by so doing, he gives momentum, gospel momentum, to sexual purity. As opposed to trying to take this little moral exhortation and attach it to nothing. Just be sexually pure. Why? I don't know. Just do it. I mean, you know it's going to happen if you attach that kind of moral exhortation to nothing. It's going to be like a little post-it note that you attach to the air. And it's going to last about that long. But if it's connected to the gospel, firmly connected, linked to the gospel, the gospel will now function to carry something that is very glorifying to God. And that is the sexual purity of his people. See the same kind of thing in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Paul says, be kind to one another. It's a behavior, right? Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Listen to this. As God in Christ forgave you. It's a direct link to the gospel. You see, both the model and the motivation for our conduct of forgiveness is the gospel. Um, the gospel creates generous-hearted people. And one of the places where that generosity is shown is in our forgiveness. So if my wife comes to me, and um, let's just say she sinned against me last night, which once in a while she does, and she comes to me and she says, will you please forgive me for what I said last night? What's a gospel guy going to do? Well, I'll think about it. Or, I'll forgive you if you promise never to say anything like that again. Or, you know, you, you choose your terrible response. No, a gospel guy is going to say, what, are you kidding me? You're giving me the opportunity to extend to you what God has so graciously given to me. Of course I'll forgive you. Of course I'll forgive you. As Christ forgave me. Think about Paul's instructions to husbands, Ephesians 5, 25, regarding their conduct. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Does that remind you of anything? Christ died for our sins. Right there at the end of verse 25, you have this wonderful statement of the gospel and its purpose is to give content and motive power and momentum to your behavior as a husband. One more. I just want, to get, I want, I want you to get the feel for this. 
how frequently this shows up in our Bibles. One more, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Here Paul is calling the Corinthian church to this ongoing generosity. And at several points in those two chapters, he explicitly reminds them of, guess what? God's generosity to them in the gospel. He links this behavior that he's calling for to the gospel so that the gospel will be the thing that functions to bring about their, gener- their generosity. See that you excel, he says, in this act, conduct, of grace also for, here's our link, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, now here's just another way to talk about the gospel. And one of the things you're going to find out is that the, the, the Bible is rich in its lexicon of gospel language. So many different ways, but it's the same thing. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Just a wonderfully vivid description of Christ died for your sins. And he ends that whole section with thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. You see how he's connecting what he's calling them to do with what God has done for them. The gospel functioning as it should to motivate generosity. Now, many, many more examples could be given. The gospel has something to say about racism. Uh, The gospel has something to say about suffering. The gospel has something to say about self-control. The gospel has something to say about our worship. The gospel has something to say about caring for the poor. I mean, ultimately, all Christian behavior should flow out of the gospel. But it is in you, pastor, minister, ministry leader, it's in you seeing and then you helping people see the connections, the specific lines of connection, the logic of the gospel, if you will, these gospel connections that really causes the gospel to function. That's what taps into the momentum and the power of the big gospel flywheel. And I would argue it's a significant part of your job In fact, I would argue it's a significant part of your life as a Christian to kind of make those connections clearly, carefully, consistently. I think that almost defines effectiveness in pastoral ministry, Um, the ability to bring the gospel to bear, the ability to help people see how the gospel is to function. Skill in making these connections. And when you do this, you're not just leveraging the logic of the gospel, you are harnessing the power of the gospel to transform lives. Now, that's the paradigm. I believe it's a biblical paradigm. I didn't just take biblical ideas and outside of the Bible put them together. I'm trying to show you that the Bible puts them together so that we don't just have an abstract gospel, we've got a functioning gospel as a biblical paradigm. Um, It's not just central, we need to have a functioning centrality of the gospel. That's the concept, that's what I want you to get, Um, but I thought it might be helpful to at least begin to think about some implications and some opportunities. I'm going to take maybe 20 minutes or so here, and then I think we'll have time, Scott is all right, just to do a little bit of Q&A. So let me just now, Roman numeral two, I think it's on the back page of uh, your outline there, implications and opportunities. Here's what I want to do. I want to suggest three 
particular places in ministry where this vision, this understanding can be and should be leveraged. Three places within which you need to be, say it again, clearly, carefully, consistently showing the connections between the gospel and the thinking and the living of your people. And then having looked at those three, I want to end with a gentle word of warning. So first, number one, and this just must not be an unstated assumption today. The first place that these connections need to be made is in your own life. Um, Paul's words to Timothy, set an example for the believers, applies to everything. Everything. And it certainly applies to this. So here's the question. Is there a functioning of the gospel in your own walk with the Lord, in your own following of Christ? Do you have a deep, personal understanding of the gospel? Every one of those words is important. A deep, personal understanding of the gospel. Do you have a deep, personal appreciation of the gospel? Are you glad you're saved? Um, how does Paul say it? Who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, is there this deep personal understanding, deep personal appreciation of what has been done for you? Are you making the connections and living in the good of the gospel every day. Um, let me just reference uh, a resource that I've found so helpful over the years. There's a little thing called the Gospel Primer. It's by a guy named Milton Vincent. Um, he does a masterful job. Um, I had the privilege of writing the foreword to that, and in it I talk about why I'm so glad that it got published. Um, he uses 30, kind of maps it on a month, 31 different reasons to preach the gospel to yourself. And he just does a great job of kind of elevating things that all of us deal with in our, our everyday lives to help us to see um, what, why it's so important for us to live in the good of the gospel as Christians, why it's so important for us to preach the gospel to ourselves. So it's a wonderful devotional thing. And then the second part is a prose summary of the gospel. And then the third is a, just a very charming, poetic summary of the gospel. It's a great tool. Um, we have a bookstore at our church. This is far and away the single most popular item in our bookstore. And part of the reason is because I just keep pushing it on people. I want everybody in our church to own that and read it and benefit from it. Um, because it will help you in your life make connections. It will help you live in the good of the gospel. Listen, I believe leadership is influence. In a word, leadership is influence. And I don't think there's any greater influence than your life. Um, now, it's important that you teach. But I don't think there's any greater influence you will have in any sphere than your life. Uh, at one point, Robert Murray McChain said, you've probably heard this, the best thing I can give my people is my own personal holiness. And in the same vein, I would say the best thing you can do, pastor, the best thing you can do, ministry leader, 
for your people is to believe and to live out the gospel. I believe God will use that. Um, What is happening in your life for the good of your people, totally apart from the next two things I'm going to talk about, I I think if if this is happening, um, this will this will have profound effect and, oh, by the way, it will add credibility and weight and effectiveness and attractiveness to your public ministry, whatever it is. So the question here is, are you purposefully growing? Are you expanding? Are you deepening in your comprehension, not just intellectual, spiritual, your comprehension of the gospel? Is the gospel design being more and more filled out so that it's not just three circles on a page, but it's being filled out in the details and connections of your life? Are you faithfully reading God's word toward that end? Are you reading things that sharpen your mind and stir your heart and help you see how to apply? But then are you also growing in your actual living out of the gospel? Do others see it embodied in your life so that they can say, oh, it's, it's, more, than just, it's more than just talk. I see it. Do my kids see the gospel functioning in their dad's life? Does my wife experience the gospel functioning in her husband's life? Do the guys on my ministry team, do they see it? Do the people of the church see it so that they can say, oh, it's, it's more than just talk. I see it embodied in the life. It's hard for me to imagine something more helpful to people, and this applies to every area, parenting, marriage, ministry. It's hard for me to imagine something more helpful to people than to see the, oh, I see what it looks like. So it's not just doctrinal teaching. It's not just words. Listen, if nothing else happens, if you don't apply any of the rest of these things, this one, this one will bear much fruit in your ministry. Number two, I suppose this is the obvious one to talk about. A second place that connections need to be made is in your regular ministry of the word, whatever form that takes. I think this is a big part of the ministry of the word. My understanding of the nature of the gospel, my understanding of the place of the gospel in the Christian faith, I think this is a big part of the ministry of the word. So I'm thinking, first and foremost, um, just because... I'm a pastor who carries Sunday morning responsibilities week by week. That's the place that I think of first. But this applies to any place where you're doing ministry of the word. And certainly foundational to that is explicit gospel preaching. And I trust that by now in this talk, that when I say gospel preaching, you recognize I'm not talking about evangelism now. I'm not talking about evangelistic proclamation to unbelievers. I'm talking about preaching the gospel again, for believers. Um, The gospel flywheel needs to be regularly kept in motion for Christians through your preaching. I love the way Jerry Bridges captures this. Uh, This is from his book, The Discipline of Grace. He writes, the gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it's the only essential message in all of history, and yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of living by it. You just don't want that happening in your church. of Christians not clearly understanding the gospel and experiencing the joy of living by it. He goes on to say, I believe part of the problem is our tendency to give an unbeliever 
just enough of the gospel to get him or her to pray a prayer to receive Christ, and then we immediately put the gospel on the shelf, so to speak, and we go on to the duties of discipleship. And as a result, Christians are not instructed in the gospel. And because they do not fully understand the riches and the glory of the gospel, they cannot live by it in their daily lives. I I try to make a point that every Sunday the gospel is present. Not just as some sort of obligation, but there's people, there's unsaved people in in the congregation every Sunday. Some of them know they're unsaved, some of them, they they think they're saved. Um, So I I, want to make sure the gospel is there, but the main reason I do it is because the saved people sitting there need to hear it. Um, They need to hear the gospel again. Remember the old song? I love to tell the story. For those who know it best seem hungry and thirsty to hear it again and again. Luther said uh, at one point, every week, every week I preach the good news of justification by faith because every week we forget. Um, Spurgeon at one, at one point said, I, I'm afraid my people grow tired of me hammering on the same nail, but hammer I will. <laughs> um, So foundational to your teaching is this preaching of the gospel. But then also, in your regular preaching or teaching, whatever form it takes, a good part of that should be made up of these making connections between the gospel and real life. Showing these connections between the gospel and their lives. Making intelligent gospel connections for people between the gospel and how they think, the gospel and how they live. So let me just give you an example here. Some time back we did, we did just kind of a brief, I think it was a three-week series entitled Ending Well, Living and Dying to the Glory of God. The first sermon was entitled The Last Two Decades, Retiring to the Glory of God. The second sermon was entitled The Last Two Years, Aging to the Glory of God. And the third sermon was entitled The Last Two Weeks, Dying to the glory of God. And in that last sermon, I mean, how could I not seize the opportunity to make a powerful gospel connection for people right out of Hebrews chapter 2, where the writer says, speaking of Christ, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see the opportunity there to make a pretty important gospel connection? Do you see how showing that connection and preaching that connection is going to cause the gospel to function with reference to a very specific pattern of thinking that occupies just about everybody's mind in your congregation, this thing called fear of death? Bring the gospel to bear. Now, my point is that making those connections is a big part. It's a major part of what you're preaching, your teaching should be made up of. And can I, can I just encourage you in this connection? You will get better at this, but not automatically. Nobody drifts into excellence. Um, you'll get better at this, but only as you pay attention, as you become increasingly familiar with the lexicon of the gospel that is contained in Scripture that's going to help you to see things as you become more and more familiar with the biblical language that gathers around the gospel, things like freedom and slavery, guilt and pardon, 
enmity and reconciliation, life and death, redemption. The Bible, I mean, is just wonderfully varied, vivid in its terminology, and the more you understand the language of the Bible as it adheres to the gospel, the more points of contact you'll be able to make with people's lives and their thinking. All right, third. A third place the gospel connection, that gospel connections need to be made is in your direct care and counsel with people. No matter what ministry you're in, um, you know this, right? It's going to involve some one-on-one care for people. If you are ministering the gospel in all of its connections faithfully, it will invariably draw you into more personal care for people, direct care. One ministry creates another ministry, and that's all right. Because you can't get everything you need to get done through preaching. There are certain ministries of the word that cannot be accomplished by you standing up here or in your public, whatever form your public ministry takes. Um, So if you are ministering faithfully, you will find yourself engaged with people after the meeting or later that week or via email. And you must see this as an extension of your ministry of the word, and you must seize that as an opportunity to, again, help people um, see the connection so that the gospel can function in their lives. You know, in my pastoral ministry, I'm finding that so much, I'm, I'm tempted to say all, so much of people's spiritual struggles, so much of their discouragement is actually due to a failure to make connections to the gospel. Uh, I remember hearing someone say, all our problems come from a failure to apply the gospel. So what might this look like? Let me just illustrate with one, one illustration. Not very long ago, uh, after preaching a sermon on forgiveness, I found myself in conversation with a young wife. She came to my office, um, and she told me that her husband had sinned against her, grievously sinned against her. And she was, understandably, having a hard time forgiving him. And she said to me at one point, I quote, I can only forgive him if he promises never to do that again. Now, I didn't rush. I listened, I waited, but at the right time, I said to her, what would happen if God had dealt with you in that way? If God had held you to the same standard? I'll only forgive you if you promise to never sin again. In other words, I reminded her of the good news, the radical good news of the gospel. And connecting this issue in her life to the gospel was what broke the logjam of resistance in her heart. I saw it break right before my eyes. I saw it in the recognition on her face and I saw it in the tears streaming down her, from her eyes. The gospel function with reference to a very particular situation of pastoral care, it wasn't my pastoral insight. It was not my kind of profundity of connecting something. You know what it was? It was the effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ on her. Listen, a big part of pastoral counseling, of godly care, is helping people see and believe 
gospel truths and it affects gospel conduct. Now, gentle word of warning. Um, if this idea has any merit in your heart right now, you've just sat here and listened to me for 40 some minutes. If you find yourself kind of thinking, I think what he's saying is true. Um, you will be tempted to pick up the language and begin to talk about bringing the gospel to bear and making gospel connections and the gospel functioning. You'll pick up the language and begin to kind of incorporate that into your pastoral ministry. Um, G.K. Chesterton at one point said, there is nothing so deadening to the divine as an habitual dealing with the outsides of holy things. Same thing is true here. There's nothing so deadening to the functioning of the gospel than an habitual dealing with the outsides, just the language, the lingo. So what I'm saying here is that in our own thinking, in our own speaking, in our own ministry, our training, we need to be patient with great patience and careful instruction. Clear, careful, consistent I remember one couple in our church early on, they came to their membership interview. They'd been with us for two years, came to their membership interview, and the, the husband looked at me and he said, you know, we came this close to leaving Crossway. Because week after week we came in and we thought, when is this guy going to move on from the gospel? And then he said, and then we got into the series on Galatians and the penny finally dropped for us. Oh, we get it the gospel for Christians. Um, be patient with great patience and careful instruction. If you take this idea and just think it's going to, through your re-speaking of jargon, lingo, going to have some effect, well, you're just going to frustrate people. In fact, you might tempt them to kind of nod their heads and say, yeah, 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 bring the gospel to bear, and they have no idea what you're talking about. So with great patience, with careful instruction, help them understand the goodness of the gospel and then patiently make connections for them. And as you do that, I believe the gospel will exert its influence in an ever-broadening way through the ministries of the church. All right, let me try to wrap this up. Some time ago, I was reading about a group of men, a group of explorer scientists, who had dedicated themselves to the exploration and the mapping of the vast stretches of desert in North Africa. Um, they were sand dune morphologists by training. Doesn't that sound fascinating? Um, but what they really loved was the topography, the, the cartography, the mapping of those spectacular deserts. And I remember reading one of them describing how after years of study, now I'm trying to draw an analogy here, after years of study, after research, after reading ancient books, after going on expeditions, how after all of that, they carried maps in their minds. And all it would take would be some offhand comment heard on the streets of Cairo about some ridge, and the entire map of North Africa would slide into his mind. This is this guy talking. That's what the gospel should be like for us. Increasingly familiar, a map 
just helping us to kind of orient others and ourselves to what God has called us to in Christ. We should have a richly detailed gospel map. And then more recently, someone shared with me from a book called The Shadow Divers. Um, There's a section about a particular diver, this guy named Nagel. He was an explorer of deep sea wrecks whose particular passion was the Andrea Doria. I'm just going to read a section of this. Had the Doria only her riches to offer, she could not have romanced Nagel so hopelessly. The ship's real challenge lay in exploration. The wreck rested on its side, making navigation dangerous and deceptive. A diver had to conceive the world sideways to make sense of doors on the floor and ceilings to the right, and she was deep, 180 feet at her shallowest and 250 feet where she crushed the ocean floor. Men sometimes got disoriented or ran out of air or lost their minds from narcosis. I don't know what that is, but it sounds dreadful. (laughs) The wreck was so deep and dark and dangerous that decades after her sinking, entire decks remained unexplored. Those decks were Nagel's destinations. Over time, Nagel penetrated the wreck in places long relegated to the impossible. His mantle at home became a miniature Doria Museum. Soon he set his sights on the bell. A ship's bell is her crown, her voice. For a diver, there's no greater prize, and many of the greats go a career without coming close to recovering one. Nagel decided to own the Doria's bell. People thought he was nuts. Scores of divers had searched for 30 years for the Doria's bell. No one believed it was there. Now listen, Nagel went to work. Again, I'm trying to draw analogies here. He studied deck plans. He studied books of photographs. He studied crew diaries. I hope you understand what I'm saying here. He studied. And then he did what few other divers did. He formulated a plan. He would need days, maybe even a week, to pull it off. No charter boat, however, was going to take a diver to the Doria for a week. So Nagel, who had saved a good bit of money, decided to buy a dive boat himself a vessel constructed from his imagination for a single purpose, to salvage the Doria's bell. In 1985, Nagel recruited five top divers, men who shared his passion for exploration, and he made this arrangement. He would take the group to the Doria at his expense. The trip would be a dedicated one, meaning the divers went with just one objective, to recover the bell. For the first few days on the wreck, the divers stuck to Nagel's plan. They found nothing. The bell just wasn't there. At that point, even the hardiest divers would have turned back. A single day on the open Atlantic in a 65-foot boat will turn your intestines inside out. Nagel and his cohorts had been out for four days in a 35-foot glorified bathtub. Now, here's the sentence that captured my attention. But a man is not so inclined to give up when he sees in panoramas. Um, The first time I shared that illustration, someone came up afterwards and said, did he get the bell? (laughs) So I've learned to tell, he got the bell. Here's what I want you to get. Um, When you feel like the person you're discipling or the person you're caring for is 180 feet underwater, and if you feel somewhat disoriented, like you might be losing your mind from ministries, narcosis, Um, you know what's going to keep you going? It's the panoramic view of the gospel. A person is not so inclined to give up when they see in panoramas. 
It's this panoramic view of the gospel that will steady you. What I'm suggesting to you this morning is the pursuit of a panoramic, map-like vision of the gospel in all of its connections, an increasingly filled out and increasingly functional vision that will enable you to bring the gospel to bear clearly, carefully, consistently for the good of your people and ultimately for the strengthening of Christ's church. To his glory, amen. All right, we've got like 10 minutes. Is that right? So um, I guess I just want to give an opportunity if there's questions of clarification or, or implication of some sort. We're going to be talking about, we're going to be standing on this the rest of the day. So thanks for being here. Um, and there will be other opportunities in the day for Q&A. But if there's anything specific to this stuff, uh, we've got a few minutes. Questions? Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. No, it's a great point you're making. One of the things that how our worldview differs from the worldview of the Bible is that we like to separate these categories. And so when the Bible talks about the mind, the Bible's talking about the inner man, the center of volition. And so you do have this heart-mind complex that is not separated in the biblical world like it is in ours. So, yeah, Todd, I would say um, amen to what you've just said. As we're speaking about these truths, let's not just be, you got to get this up here. Somehow this truth has got to register. That's why I, I tried in that to, to use the language of when it's grasped, when it's thoroughly grasped, is there a deep personal appreciation of these things? So, yeah, I want to fight against abstraction as strongly as I can. Um, that's why the whole idea of let's, let's let this function in the life. Yeah, but good. Thanks for raising that. Another question? Or comment or observation? Yeah, Roger. How did you personally come to an understanding of gospel centrality? By the grace of God, over time, through, through influences, yes. Um, so I... I I think particular books, and so, you know, that gospel primer wasn't a shaping influence for me. It was one that I was able to kind of quickly come alongside of, but Jerry Bridges, The Discipline of Grace, um, C.J. Mahaney's little book, The Cross-Centered Life, um, Piper's Preaching, um, John Piper's Preaching. Those are the influences that, that I think shaped me, but I had this profound benefit of growing up in a godly Christian home where maybe this language wasn't as explicit, but man, the foundation was there so that when these things came, it snapped pretty quickly for me. I, oh, I see that. Yeah. It matters what you read. It matters who you listen to. Um, but I do think, I find myself so convinced that this is a biblical paradigm that when you encounter it, it's not hard to embrace it. Um, so when I, when I began to hear the language of this, um, 
it was easy for me to kind of see the goodness of it. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. Right. Oh, this is wonderful. Yeah, I don't know if you all can hear his question. What happens if, if this isn't kind of the biblical paradigm? There's going to be some default. And you know what our defaults are? Legalism, moralism, subjectivism. That's where people are going to go, and that's where ministry is going to go if you don't link to the gospel. So I'm not standing up here and saying, you know, this paper needs to go in your churches, but I would say without apology based on what Paul has said, this better be central to your ministry. And it better be central in a way that's functioning, not just as an abstraction. So, yeah, I would say with all my heart, this has got to be it. I believe this. And if it's not this, so this is, this is what sobers us here. If it's not this, it's going to be something else. And the, and the other things tend to be performance-oriented or subjectively oriented, how I feel today. Um, so we've got to offset those things. That's why Spurgeon said what he said. <laughs> That's why Luther said what he said, because there is this constant pressure. Um, Not only do we forget, we leak, so we need to be reminded, but there are other things that want to occupy uh, and and take the driver's uh, seat in our lives. And so this is both a positive, this is the right thing, and it displaces the negative. Um, So we got to get this right. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Yeah. Primer is Milton Vincent. Vincent, it's a small, uh, just, uh, it's a very small little book. Maybe like 70 pages, and it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. So two parts to your question. I'll take the second part first. That's why I stressed in that statement, if this isn't operating for you, if this is only a professionalized thing, it's not going to last. This has got to be um, operating. That's why I quoted that verse from Paul, who loved me, gave himself for me. Is there, in fact, a deep personal appreciation for what God has done for you? So is there a joy in your ministry that flows out of your salvation? Um, drink again 
from the well of salvation. And I know it's, you know, it's just too easy for me to say, well, go spend some time with Jesus and get, your, get yourself, but you know what? Go spend some time with Jesus and get yourself reoriented to the wonder of what has been done for you. Um, I, I believe that there are places in Scripture that are designed to remind you, so be strategic in your Scripture memory and have places of God's Word that regularly speak to you um, about what God has done for you in Christ. Um, read Romans devotionally and not just in preparation for some ministry thing. So the first part, how do you continue? Well, there's a deep well there, and so you got to draw from that well. I'm quoting that passage from, or I'm referencing that passage from Isaiah. Drink deeply from the well of salvation. That's the first part. The second part, or the, actually the, the first thing you raised, how do you keep fresh in this? Let me just share with you a principle that comes out of preaching but applies to this as well. Think about the Gospel of John for a second. You have this whole beautiful story, 21 chapters of just a remarkable story, and then John says at the end, all of this was written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. So if I'm preaching all of the Gospel of John faithfully, every sermon better be um, cued to that purpose. And so it could be, well, I'm just preaching the same thing over and over again. So that you might know that Jesus is the Christ and believing you might have life in his name. Every week, every week the same, all the way through the Gospel of John. Except every one of those passages inside the Gospel of John makes its own unique contribution to that. So as you teach God's word, as you shepherd God's people, yes, here's the umbrella underneath which all of your ministry is going to take place. This powerful gospel. And yet there is so much specificity underneath. It's just that you need to make sure that you're operationalizing each piece in terms of this. So think about the gospel. Think about the gospel, the functioning gospel as mom. And think about all of the other stuff you've got to cover as children. Sometimes children can be unruly and they can run off and take on a life of their own. And so that's what happens sometimes when we take this particular teaching and now it becomes freestanding and it can turn to moralism or something else. We've got to make sure that it, it's, it's kind of like on a close leash to mom. Stay close to mom. And so, yes, it's going to be endlessly interesting because of all of these other things that have to be, have to be communicated, but they've got to be connected to the main thing. So... It's easy for me to stand up here and say this. It's a lot of hard work. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed but rightly handles the word of God. So there's no getting around that. Yeah. All right. I think we're done. Yeah. Well, what a beautiful foundation for the journey we're going to be on today as we think about gospel-centered discipleship. Well, let's just uh, pray together and invite the Lord to just kind of cement these things into our hearts and minds, and then uh, we'll take a break. Father, we thank you so much for the beauty of the gospel. Father, I pray as lights are turned on, as familiar truths go more deeply into our minds and hearts, Father, may it truly lead to transformation individually, but also transformation that will flow outward as we seek to be an influence in the lives of others, that they too might know the riches of the gospel and be transformed by it. 
We pray, Father, that you would be in the rest of our day now, and as we break, that it might be a time of refreshment, of connection, and deep friendship, Father, that would be an ongoing encouragement as well. And so uh, we, we dedicate uh, the rest of our day to you and pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you.